Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. Today's event occurred in the year 1945, and with World War II ending, you can imagine a lot happened that year. For starters, January the 27th, the Soviet Red Army liberates the Auschwitz and Birkenau concentration camps. February the 9th, Black Friday, a force of Allied Bristol Bowfighter aircraft suffers heavy casualties in an unsuccessful attack on German destroyer Z-33, and escorting vessels sheltering in Fjord Fjord in Norway. On March the 4th in the United Kingdom, Princess Elizabeth, later become Queen Elizabeth II, joins the Auxiliary Territorial Services, or ATS, as a truck driver and mechanic in London. April the 14th sees the first Canadian army assume military control of the Netherlands, where German forces are trapped in the Atlantic War fortifications along the coastline. April the 30th, and Adolf Hitler and his wife of one day, Eva Braun, take the easy coward's way out and commit suicide as the Red Army approaches the Führerbunker in Berlin. Karl Donitz succeeds Hitler as President of Germany, and Joseph Goebbels succeeds as Chancellor of Germany, in accordance with Hitler's political testament of the previous day. On the 9th of May, British forces take the surrender of the occupying troops, with Royal Navy ships HMS Bulldog arriving in St. Peterport, Guernsey, and HMS Beagle in St. Helier, Jersey. The next day, as part of the liberation of the German-occupied Channel Islands, Sark is reclaimed, with British forces taking the surrender of the occupying troops and leaving them under the orders of Dame Sybil Hathaway. And on May the 16th, Another Channel Island is reclaimed, Alderney, with British forces taking the surrender of the occupying troops, the civilian population having been evacuated. July the 26th, Winston Churchill resigns as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom after his Conservative Party is soundly defeated by the Labour Party in the 1945 general election. Clement Attlee becomes the new Prime Minister and it's the first time that Labour has governed Britain with a majority in the House of Commons. And lastly, on October the 10th, the Nazi Party is dissolved by the Allied powers. 
but our event happened in a shared house in Orange Street, St. Paul's, on the 25th of May, 1945, when a drunken veteran soldier had finally had enough and snapped. Word of the Week This week I give you a slang phrase from World War II, which is... Bottled sunshine, a term used by British soldiers during World War II to refer to beer, the beloved beverage that provided a bit of comfort and relaxation during difficult times. Reginald John Frederick Bird, who was born on 3rd of November 1914, had married Lily Gladys May Knapp, who was born on the 28th of January, 1918. The ceremony took place in March 1936, and a year later, they had a daughter called Barbara, who was eight years old when the crime happened. Bert joined the Royal Artillery in 1940 and served overseas from 1942 until his return on leave from Greece in October 1945. Just before his return, his father, John Frederick Burt, had received a letter from him dated the 30th of November 1945, and it was postmarked Salonica, and said, Just a few lines hoping you're in the best of health. I've just received a letter from Lil after seven weeks. Ma, I don't know how to tell you, but Lil has just had a baby boy. It's broken my heart, but for God's sake, don't go down there and start any trouble. All these months she's been writing loving letters to me still. There it is. Can't do anything until I can get home. It was around the same time the letter arrived in the UK that Lily moved out of the house in Milsom Street they had shared and in with her sister, Mrs Irene Joan Harris, at 22 Orange Street in St Paul's, where they shared rooms. The letter Bert spoke of was found in his wallet after his arrest. Despite her betrayal, Bert still paid her an allowance and offered to take her back and adopt the baby, a boy called Kerry. Bert returned to the army but was eventually discharged in April 1945 and returned to Bristol on May the 20th after spending time in hospital. He moved in with Lily and his daughter in Orange Street, sharing the back room where arguments would invariably happen. On the 25th of May 1945, Lily went out with some friends to the local pub and returned home with her sister. With them was a man called Thomas O'Connell, a friend who had with him some fish and chips. Thomas was a fittest mate from Ashley Road in Bristol, and he freely admitted to the affair he was having with Lily he too was married. There was a knock on the door, and once Thomas realised it was Bert, he fled out the side door. Around midnight, Mrs Harris was awoken by screams coming from her sister's bedroom. Don't you dare touch me! Stand back! She leapt out of bed and ran there straight away, and when she got there, she saw her sister lying on the bed. Lily wasn't dead at that point and was talking. Irene wanted to tell the court what had been said, but 
it was not admitted as evidence, so we don't actually know. Irene did say during cross-examination that she hated the sight of bird. Police were immediately called out and it was Inspector Leslie Drinnan who turned up first. He saw Bert sitting on the edge of the bed with his head in his hands in the dim, gaslit room, murmuring, What have I done? I love my wife. <laughs> Word on the street. Well, today we venture forth to Picton Lane, named in honour of Waterloo hero Lieutenant General Thomas Picton. It's believed he was wounded three days earlier in another battle, but concealed it in order to lead his troops into battle. The earlier wound was only discovered after his death. When Reginald Burt was found in the bedroom with the body, Inspector Leslie Drinnan also found an open clasp knife and the inspector saw that the woman had a wound on the left side of her neck. There was no evidence of a struggle. The next morning, Bert was charged with murder and replied, I didn't know that I did that to her. I wouldn't have done that for the world. I went there last night to get her to come back to me for Barbara's sake. Dr. Arthur Leslie Taylor was called and declared Lee to be dead. Bert was in a very confused, bemused state at this point, acting as if he'd been drunk. The sister, Irene Harris, would later say that he was fighting drunk. Mr Norman Skelton, Bert's defence lawyer, made a dramatic plea to the jury that lasted an hour and 20 minutes, asking for a verdict of manslaughter instead of murder. He brought up the letter written to Bert whilst he was away serving, saying, This man was serving his country for three years abroad, many thousands of miles away. Then one fateful day in September 1945, this letter came to him. What were his reactions? What were the thoughts of this man? They were like so many hundreds of thousands of others who were serving their country miles away. Day by day, he was thinking of home, of seeing his child Barbara, and above all, of returning to that woman which he loved so dearly and so much. That letter must have come to him as a bombshell. The whole of his world must have been broken into bits. Skelton mentioned the letter Bert had written to his parents, saying... That was a remarkable letter. There was not a word of recrimination or of desire for revenge. Was this the type of man who would deliberately intend to murder his wife? I say that drunkenness is the only possible explanation of this. Bert's father, John Frederick Bert, told the court that his son had been very happy with his wife who would never let anyone say a word against her. He had told him... I don't care whatever she's done, I think the world of her. When Inspector Drinnan, the first officer on the scene, took the stand, he told the court... As I entered the room, I saw the accused sitting on the bed with his head in his hands and crying. He looked up and said, What have I done? I love my wife. Accused appeared to have been drinking considerably. His breath smelt of intoxicating liquor, but I did not consider him to be drunk. I saw the body of a woman lying on the bed. She appeared to be dead. And so it was Reginald Burt's turn to take the witness stand, and he answered questions from the defence, detailing how he'd been married in 1936 and was called up in 1940. His lawyer asked, Up to that time, 
Had your married life been a happy one? Yes. Were you in love with your wife? Very much. And your child, Barbara? Yes, very much. In 1940, you went into the forces, and in 1942, you were abroad? Yes. Bert was cross-examined by the prosecution, Mr. G. R. F. Morris, and said that he didn't remember what had happened that fateful evening. He had a hazy recollection of going to the house, but couldn't remember anything until being in the police station. Until today, you have never said to the police that your recollection is hazy? No, sir. Are you making any efforts to remember these things? Yes, sir. Have you got a bad memory? No, sir. Do you remember having been seen by two doctors and two police officers at various times that night? I've heard it said in court, but I don't remember, sir. Why did you want to see the Irishman? To tell them to keep away from my wife. You went to see the Irishman and you were getting madder and madder all the time. Not madder, depressed. And you killed your wife. So they tell me. When he addressed the jury, Mr. Morris said, You have as complete a picture as far as human ingenuity can make it, and you have established beyond reasonable doubt that a woman was killed by a knife in the hands of her husband. That, in my submission, is conclusive. The next step is to consider whether the hand that held the knife struck her voluntarily or not. Whether the husband knew what he was doing. That, in broad, unlegal language, is the main point in the case. You have to decide on the fact. Did he or did he not know what he was doing on that night? What also came out in court was that on the 1st of December 1941, Bert had been charged with drunk and disorderly, with drunk in charge of a child under seven years of age, and with wife assault. Police Sergeant Reed stated that at 1am on Sunday the 30th of November, he heard shouting coming from the direction of Cumberland Street in Bristol, and saw the defendant in the middle of the road with a child, aged about four years old, in his arms. As he approached Bert, the defendant threw the child towards him and was luckily caught, otherwise she would have fallen to the ground. The police officer saw that Bert was drunk and arrested him. Mrs Bert made a statement that her husband knocked her down. Bert was then charged under the Probation Act and was fined 10 shillings for being drunk in charge of a child under seven. After the prosecution and defence concluded, Mr Justice Morris summed up the case. Unhappy and distressing tragedy, it was, of course, not suggested in any circumstances that the accused man was justified in taking any action against his wife which would lead to her death. The conduct of an erring or unfaithful wife did not justify unlawful or violent conduct on the part of the husband. As far as this case is concerned, the elements you have to consider in regard to the charge of murder are these. Murder will have been committed if someone insane mind unlawfully wills another person with malice and forethought, either expressed or implied. 
He then made a point of mentioning that the accused was justifiably sane when he committed the crime. It has been put to you, the defence, that the accused man was in such a physical condition as a result of alcoholic excess that he was not capable of forming the intention either to kill or to cause grievous bodily harm. It is put to you that there was a killing, and though the killing was an unlawful killing, it was not committed with malice and forethought, and therefore amounts not to murder, but to manslaughter. Nobody has suggested that there is other than two possible verdicts, murder or manslaughter. Evidence of drunkenness as far as incapability is irrelevant until there is incapacity to form the intention to commit a particular crime. Drunkenness can never be an excuse for crime, but may be drunkenness to so extreme a form that a drunken man may wholly incapable of forming the intent required to prove the crime. If you are in doubt to whether the prosecution have proved the element of intention, it would be your duty to return a verdict of manslaughter, provided you are satisfied that it was the accused man who was responsible for his wife's death. The jury found Bert guilty, and when Justice Morris was passing sentence, he told Bert, I should not be discharging public duty if I passed on you a less sentence than five years penal servitude. On Monday the 14th of April 1947, Bert, along with another prisoner called William Patrick, who was serving a sentence for murder, both escaped from Hill Prison. Bert, though, was apprehended the next day when he was found asleep under a haystack a few miles away from the prison. He served out the remainder of his sentence and died early in 1978. Ted Bundy abducted and murdered my dad's high school friend, Debbie Kent, in 1974. At least, Bundy admitted to killing her just before his execution, but police were never able to locate her body. That's the topic of just one episode of Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained. Spine-tingling supernatural stories, historical mysteries, and true unsolved cases are all things to expect when you tune in to our show. I'm Jaden McKell, and I'm the host of Straight Up Enigmas. Our bite-sized, bi-weekly episodes focus on the world's strangest mysteries. Sacred and sonic geometry, the murder of Karen Silkwood, Turkmenistan's door to hell, the curse of the omen, and much more. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find podcasts. In the news today, boffins have discovered that the name for a bunch of sheep rolling down a hill is a lambslide.
Back in the day facts. And so we start with the 3rd of February, 1945, when British Prime Minister Winston Churchill arrives in Yalta, Crimea, Soviet Union, for the Big Three Yalta Conference, with Franklin D. Roosevelt and Joseph Stalin. They made final plans for the defeat of Nazi Germany, their joint occupation of Germany and for post-war Europe. On the 4th of February 1977, Rumours, the 11th studio album by Fleetwood Mac, is released and becomes the Grammy Album of the Year. On the 5th of February 1597, a group of early Japanese Christians, known as the 26 Martyrs, are killed by the new government of Japan, being seen as a threat to Japanese society. On the 6th of February 1935, the board game Monopoly goes on sale for the first time. The 7th of February 1301 sees Edward of Carnarvon, later Edward II, becoming the very first English Prince of Wales. On the 8th of February 1627, gunpowder is used in a mining operation instead of mechanical tools in present-day Slovakia, reportedly the first time explosives had been used in mining. And lastly, on the 9th of February 1961, the Beatles play their first gig at Liverpool's Cavern Club. They would eventually play there nearly 300 times over the next two years. Right, folks, well, I fear that's the end of another show, but don't worry, because I'll be here, same time, same place, next week. And before I go, I really do have to thank those who give up their time to make this show the best it could possibly be. The real stars of the show. And this week, they are Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Joe Wilson, David Hale, Steve Yeo, and Tony Allen from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>